Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, here with my co-host, Pat Gallagher, and our guest today, and Neil Duffy. Looking forward to discussing Neil's path into the business uh, as he is CEO and founder of 17 Sport. Uh, Neil, we'll dive into um, a little bit of your past, your experiences, lessons learned along the way. I know you worked with Pat around Super Bowl 50, so we can always dive in there as well. But nonetheless, welcome. Thank you, Jake. Jake and Pat, it's good to be here. All right, Pat, in, in proper fashion, I'll let you kick it off uh, with Neil and well, you guys go back. It, it, with this, this whole series that we have, we're looking for people who are interesting and accomplished who are in sports and allow them to, to tell their story of what they're doing. Neil and I became acquainted and actually worked together on Super Bowl 50. Um, and Neil was there from the beginning when we actually put the bid together. To, uh, to, to bring it and then also to figure out a way to make it, uh, make it successful. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to ask Neil to start off is that, Neil, you, you, you sort of took a left turn from sort of a traditional sports marketing career and you, um, you, know, you, you, you did the sort of the noble thing and said, you know, there's gotta be a reason to do this other than just to make money, for, to make rich people richer it's sports can actually do something good and can be a, a force for good and not always easy to, to make that happen but just talk to us about why you're doing this how you got into this and and sort of um you just wrote a book called legacy sport we could talk about that too why are you doing this um my wife asks me that question every day, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> no, she doesn't. She's very supportive of what I do. But I, but I think if I just take a few steps backwards, um, you know, my career started in South Africa, uh, where I started a traditional sports marketing business, advising brands on how to maximize the return on investment from their um, spend in sport. So working on the brand side of the house. Uh, that was back in the 90s, a long time ago. Uh, but we were kind of leading the conversation at that stage, one of the first agencies anywhere in the world to be kind of representing the brands. Um, it's quite early on uh, to be doing that. Um, and that was great. And we, you know, we built a very successful business. Um, one day I got a knock on the door from uh, some guys who were representing the Interpublic Group who were in the process of creating this thing called Octagon. Um, so the sort of back end of the 90s. Um, and their vision was really to create a uh, a company that was big enough to take on IMG because at the time the IMG were the big, the big fish in the pond and really the only fish in the pond in sports marketing uh, at a global level anyway. And so IPG created this, this thing called Octagon and the way that they did it was by acquiring, I think it was 28 companies in 18 months all over the world, spent a whole lot of cash to do it um, and put us all under this banner of, of Octagon. Um, so yeah, it was an exciting time and you know, we were winning awards and I also wrote a book back then called Passion Branding, which was all around harnessing the power of fan passion to build strong brands. Um, so my, my thing then was about you know, understanding fan passion and, 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 and how you could use that as a driver of business value within sport. And that was great. And you know, we, we, we did the deal with Octagon. We became part of the Octagon family. I got to work, started to work internationally outside of just South Africa. Uh, one thing led to another and I finished my earn out and they offered me the opportunity to move to Europe as president of Octagon Europe, Middle East Africa. So to take on responsibility for, for the region um, with the mandate to kind of do what we'd done, what we achieved in South Africa with the rest of the group, which was quite a challenge because the reality was, I think there were 14 or 15 different markets in the region. Um, and that 
because of the model that meant 14 or 15 entrepreneurs who had each built their own businesses and each had their own vision of what they wanted to be doing and what Octagon should be doing. And we're all doing different things. Some, some of them were managing athletes, some of them were managing events, some of them were managing sponsorships. And it was a, you know, without using uh, any profanities, it was a challenge um, to get all those people aligned around a shared mission. Um, and so that, that was kind of all going on. So that, you know, at a professional level, um, things became quite challenging. Um, and what I'd also noticed growing up in South Africa um, was that whenever, as, as a consequence of, of the transition from white to black rule in South Africa, there was a huge focus on helping the black community to catch up because they'd been denied access to things like education, healthcare, you know, basic human rights that, that the three of us will take for granted. So there was a big focus in those early years of, of the new South Africa um, on helping the underserved communities catch up from the past. And so what we started to do was we started to add what we called a development component to every sponsorship that we did. Uh, so in addition to the traditional stuff, you know, where you're driving, you know, awareness through signage and engagement and, and hospitality and all the typical stuff that we use sponsorship for, we also started to add the social component to it. Is how could we use the sponsorship as a platform to make uh, the world a better place in the context of South Africa and help local people to get ahead. And, and we noticed that when we did that, the, the sponsorship outperformed the traditional model. Um, so that was really interesting. But when I moved to Europe, nobody really seemed to be interested in that conversation um, at the time. They were just very focused on, you know, what's the value return on investment? What's the value? Yeah, making money. Exactly. It's all about the money. Show me the money. And so, so that's all going on. And at the same time, I've always been kind of like a student of, of, uh, of the future. I've always been somebody who's looked ahead to trends and things that are starting to emerge and patterns that are starting to take shape. And, and I, so this is like 15 years ago, I started to, to sense that there was a, the traditional uh, business model was under threat. You know, so this relentless focus on profits at any price, uh, short-term focus where, you know, what matters most are your results for the next quarter. And I started to question the kind of sustainability of all of that. I mean, when you're growing, when you're growing your business from, you know, 10 off a base of 10 and you've got to grow by 20%, that's okay because it's only two. But when your business is at 100,000 and you've got to grow by 20%, that's, that's a much bigger number. And I just started to question, you know, how, how viable is it just to keep growing year on, year out um, without compromising your values and cutting corners and doing things that maybe you, you don't want to do um, at a personal level. So all of that kind of happened together. And then I got sick. Um, I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, and that was a real kind of life-changing moment for me. Um, really forced me to evaluate my, you know, my values and what I wanted out of life. And so I took a year off. I decided to leave Octagon, you know, uh, took a year off. Um, and during that period of time, I just had the opportunity to reflect on what kind of life I wanted to lead going forward. And what I decided I wanted to do was I didn't want to give up my, you know, my, my previous, what was it, 20 years in the sports business and the contacts that I'd built up and the reputation I'd developed and the network that I'd, I didn't want to just walk away from that. And I'm still a great, I'm still a firm believer in the, in the value of capitalism. I still think capitalism is a good model if it's done the right way. So I try to think about, well, how can I put those two things together? How can I put sport and wanting to do good through sport together with this drive to be um, um, capitalist, I guess, you know, that's what I was brought up as. Um, and so that's, you know, ended up in me deciding to go down this path that I've been on for the last 15 years now. And I'm better able to articulate it now, Pat, than I was back then. To be honest with you, I was just going on a gut instinct at that stage. Um, you know, I just felt that there was something happening here and I was probably 15 years too early, um, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I've decided to go on this journey and, and, uh, 
look for opportunities to work on projects that would give me the opportunity to try out this kind of new philosophy. Um, America's Cup was the first, which is how I ended up living in San Francisco. We delivered that event as the world's first carbon neutral zero waste event, all around this idea that we could use this event as a platform to raise awareness and action around ocean health, and it was a success. Um, lots of other parts of America's Cup were a challenge, but that part of it was a success. Um, worked on a thing called the One World Play Project, world's first indestructible soccer ball, never goes flat, doesn't need a pump. Put a partnership together with Man United and, um, and uh, Chevrolet was part of that whole thing. And that became the cause component of that, that new partnership. And then met you um, and Daniel Lurie. And, um, you know, Daniel was just taken with the idea of trying to do Super Bowl 50 differently. Well, I, I sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm not as articulate as you. I sort of said, well, if we do this, you know, when it, it, it let, let's make it more than like, it's like the circus coming to town and, and, you know, having their way with you. Let's do, let's have it be more than just having to clean up after it, after, <laughs> you know, we should leave something of value. So the idea was, you know, we, we came down to three core values, which would, you know, would, it would be the most giving Super Bowl ever, which means that, there would be more of a reason to do it in the Bay Area than um, than maybe somewhere else. It would be the most shared and it would be the most technologically advanced. Those are, were sort of the big goals. But um, that's how we met. And we actually succeeded in making Super Bowl 50 um, the, most, um, the most giving Super Bowl ever. We raised a lot of money that was just given away here, but also a number of other things that really we're sort of setting a good example like and you help put a lot of those things together so um yeah i mean pat it was you know i still talk about it today and the, i mean it's five years what five or six years later now and people yeah. still love the story and it's you know my only disappointment is that other host cities haven't embraced the model that we built because i don't understand that but anyway that's for another day um but i but yeah i, th I think that you know when i reflect back on what we did then i think the single the, the single defining decision that made what we did different from everything else was the, the idea, the notion that, as you've just said, that this event could be about something more than just a party. It could be used as a platform to make the Bay Area a better place to, and in, in our case, we decided to focus on young people. So how do we help young people to overcome the opportunity gap? And, you know, that decision, putting that at the center of everything that we did as an organization made all the difference because it affected everything that we did from how we engaged with the sponsors. And that, I mean, brilliant, this, I think it was your idea, you know, 25% of every dollar that we raise is gonna go back into the community. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a first- That's a great idea until I realized that since I was in charge of raising the money, we <laughs> always raise 25% more money. Oh, yeah. But, but you know what, you, as you said before, it, it, it really made um, the, comp the, the companies who got involved with us um, it wasn't all about tickets and suites and all that stuff. It was really about leaving something behind that was of value. And, um, and it, it became a real plus. It was yep. getting companies involved. And, and it was, uh, well, it was very gratifying. It was fantastic. Over. And, you know, it's, um, and, and if you think, if you reflect back on some of the, you know, some of the insights around that, Pat, I don't know the exact figure, but I, you know, plus 80% of, of the partners that we got on board were not endemic to NFL. So they weren't sponsoring this event because it was a football event or because it was Super Bowl. Right. I really believe that they were doing it because of its, its focus on the community. And of course it helped that it was Super Bowl because otherwise it's just philanthropy. You know? So we were able to offer them both the opportunity to make the Bay Area a better place and position themselves in a positive light in the community, but also get the, the, the value that they needed 
um, out of out of the the investment from a traditional you know sponsorship perspective. So it affected the sponsors. It affected the you know the way we engaged with the fans. I mean, you think about all the stuff that Stephanie and the team did on the communications front. It, the majority of it was message around the difference we're making in the community, um, and that's what people resonated with. It affected the way that we delivered the event. So you know we said it's all very well to be this you know this event with this higher purpose, but we then have a responsibility to deliver this event in a responsible way. So so. Uh, you know, the decision to to embrace this purpose of improving the Bay, the lives of people in the Bay Area affected everything that we did. It affected Stephanie and her communications team. If you think about, remember back to all the content that was being produced, the majority of the content was was either around that or the technology um, you know, innovation that we were driving. The, the way that we dealt with um, the fans, you know, think about programs like Play Your Part and we in got involved the fans in this, this, this idea of doing good. Um, and it affected the way that we delivered the event because you can't do all those things and then deliver an irresponsible event. I mean, like you said earlier, leave a big mess behind afterwards. So we had a very robust sustainability program, which we called our net positive program, you know, focusing on energy and waste and water and food. Um, and we did a number of firsts on that front. Uh, we involved even the sponsors. I mean, we were recognizing the sponsors with that were doing things the right way with an, uh, the opportunity to win an award for the most sustainable activation around Super Bowl 50. Yeah, so it was, you know, when I reflect back on all of that, certainly still today, a highlight, highlight of my career. Neil, when you think about where you started in terms of creating the ROI, measuring the ROI, figuring out how to make the sponsorships continue, um, make it valuable, right? And as you think about the, the cause for good, sometimes it's hard to measure, right? And sometimes it's a tangible impact. Sometimes it's you know that you've made the impact for the long term, but you don't know what it is yet. How do you go about the measuring yeah. component? And, you know, I, I go back to my experience at Purdue where we did a, a fun sponsorship with Duke Energy, where the idea was behind, you know, kind of the zero waste and, and how many, you know, tons of recycling. It was all about recycling and, you know, being able to show by the end of the season after seven football games, right? How many, you know, tons of, of recycling there was as opposed to compost, right? And, and this neat tie-in, we were able to measure that. But then where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, the whole topic of, it, it's, you know, it's funny, Jake, it's like, if you think back, if I think back to my Octagon days, the whole thing there was around, again, was, was a, a lot of the conversation was how do we value the return on investment? And, you know, people like IEG, were kind of first movers in terms of developing those sponsorship metrics. You know, Lisa Uckman and her team there were actually able to put a dollar value on all the different benefits, tangible and intangible benefits that flow from sponsorship. Um, and I think we, we're kind of getting to a similar level now with this on the social side of things. So 15 years ago, it was really tough. Uh, it, a lot of the stuff was, was very anecdotal. You know, it was very out, output focused. You know, so we did this and we, you know, we reduced our waste, to your example, by X number of tons or whatever. But so what, uh, you know, what, what difference, how does that make the world a better place? Because you did that. So the conversations moved along a lot. And so the kind of um, discussions we're having with our clients now at 17 on this, on this front are all around measuring what we call social capital um, and looking at the capital, the social capital that gets created through these interventions. Well, what does um, 17 sport mean? What does it mean? So 17, you know, when we decided, so uh, uh, just again, to take a step backwards. So after Super Bowl, decided it was time to go and, and really double down on this work because we had this great case study now that we could actually prove that this approach worked. Um, eventually ended up crossing paths with a guy called Fabien Paget, a French guy, um, 
who was on a similar path, but more on the athlete side. And he'd been working with Serena Williams, for example, on her women's empowerment stuff and, and uh, helping her to drive uh, mission aligned uh, corporate partnerships. So we created this thing called 17. It's, you know, it's like, uh, what is it? 15, 18 months ago now. And, and um, the 17 relates to the sustainable development goals. Um, so I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with those. I'm always surprised how few people in sport actually know what they are. Can you um, rattle them off? I can't, but I know there's 17 of them. Um, yeah. And I know that they're a, I know that they're a framework um, that the United Nations and governments around the world and more, now and more increasingly corporations are starting to use as a framework for doing good. Um, and I know the goal number 17 is about partnerships and this idea that you can get more done together than you can alone. Uh, and so that's why what 17 Sport is all about. So we, we set up, Pat, we set up 17 Sport specifically to solve a problem. Uh, and the problem that we've, ident that we've identified is that sport is not um, contributing towards helping to build a sustainable future at the level that it should be, uh, definitely when compared to what's happening in business sector. Uh, and we just think that sports boxing way below its weight when it comes to the, the, the difference that it can make in the world. So, so 17 Sport, we describe our purpose as uh, being to accelerate the transformation of sport into a force for good. Uh, the way we do that is by inspiring, educating, and enabling the business of sport to do good while doing well, by providing um, thinking, doing, and, and uh, building solutions. Um, the thinking piece is helping our partners to figure out how they move doing good from the fringes of their business to the center. And sport is still doing good on the fringes. You know, there are very, very few sports properties that will say, like at Super Bowl 50, you know, we exist to make the Bay Area a better place. Um, so that's the strategic piece. The building piece is around this idea of partnerships and you can get more done together than you can alone. So building partnerships, either commercial partnerships or other forms of partnerships. Partnerships don't always need to involve money. Um, there can be other forms of value exchange um, that can be useful. And then the third piece is the doing piece, which is about implementing these programs. So, so we're, you know, we describe ourselves as a sports impact company. We hate the word agency. We're not an agency because we don't think agencies we don't want to be an agency. Uh, we want to be a sports impact company because everything we do has a double, at least a double bottom line. It's driving a financial return on investment, but it's also driving a social environmental return on investment. And um, you think about the word impact, Neil, what does impact mean to you? Yeah. Im impact is, you know, it, in the context of the work that we do, impact is about doing something positive in the world, um, either through a social or environmental lens. And so again, if you go back to those 17 sustainable development goals, you know, I know some of them. So five is about uh, gender equity and, you know, 14 is about 13 and 14 are about, are about the environment and about the oceans. And, you know, 11 is about sustainable cities. And so impact is about moving the needle in those different 17 areas in such a way that the world is a bit in a better, better place than it was before you started uh, and, and ultimately solving a problem. Um, so, you know, we always, the, the other question I often get asked is what's the difference, what, what's the difference between purpose and CSR? Um, and purpose is very def, definitely a very different thing to CSR. It's, if you think of it like a spectrum, on the one hand, a spectrum of doing good. On the one hand, you have philanthropy, which is just about giving away money with no real expectation of getting anything in return for it, other than maybe a good feeling or being able to reference something in a, in a corporate, uh, annual corporate report. And then purpose is the other extreme. Purpose is about using your platform uh, to solve a problem in the world and csr for us is, is really just about behaving or acting as a responsible company corporate social responsibility 
and it's more internally focused than it is externally focused. Um, so all this is, it's interesting, and you know, maybe you agree. All this is sort of it's sort of easy to say, and you can't, you know, everybody nods their head <laughs> when you start talking about it. But to actually implement this and to get companies and organizations to actually step forward and sort of put their money where their, you know, where their their intuition and their mouth is 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 difficult sometimes. And uh, but there are some terrific stories. I mean, what are maybe. Um, Neil, what are a couple of stories of, sure. of sort of programs or initiatives that were sort of created out of this that you're really proud of? Mm. You know, Pat, I'm going to take a step back again and say that that's pre, when was it? When did COVID kick off? March last year. You know, pre-March 2020, this conversation was much more difficult to have than it is today. I think that's the first thing I'd say. COVID has really accelerated the level of interest in the sports community in this topic, um, which is great for us. Um, you know, which is why I said earlier, maybe I was 15 years too early um, in terms of starting this work. But the conversations right now are just going through the roof in terms of uh, from both a sports property and a brand side. You know, we're, we're having conversations with sports properties. I mean, we work with people like UEFA. Um, you know, we're doing some work with the U US Olympic and Paralympic properties. We're doing work with La Liga. Um, so big, big properties. And, and they're saying to us, um, excuse me, can you help us, please? Uh, our brand, our brand partners are all asking us about purpose and we don't even know how to spell it. I'm, I'm exaggerating now, but so th there's pressure coming from sponsors on the properties to be more purposeful. And the reason for that is that the brands have already, they're already on this journey. They've started it five, 10 years ago and they've, they're doing it because their customers um, expect them to do it. The people that work for them expect them to do it. And so they're responding uh, and changing their business model so that they remain relevant to the people that want, they want to sell their stuff to. And they're starting to question the value of sport as a useful marketing tool for them because sport is not, is not purposeful enough, which is really interesting. So I, I just, so I preface the, the examples with that. Um, so the things are, so things are changing really quickly. Um, I mean, some examples, my favorite is always Super Bowl, but other, other examples are uh, we work with Adidas. Um, and Adidas is really interesting because you know they'll they'll tell you and you'll if you go to their website you'll read that their purpose is about improving people's lives through sport that's their purpose as an organization so no reference to sneakers or you know t-shirts or anything it's about improving people's lives through sport um, the three pillars that they have decided to focus on are the first is an environmental one which is around waste and plastic and so i'm sure you've seen what they've done with their relationship with parlay for the oceans that's the first shoe made out of 100 recycled ocean plastic um, they told me the other day they'll sell 18, I think it's 18 million pairs of those shoes this year. Hmm. Uh, it's quite amazing. Um, so the second pillar is about diversion and inclusion. It's called One Starting Line. It's this idea that everybody should have the same opportunity, start on the same starting line to get ahead in life. Um, and then the third pillar is um, what they call breaking barriers, which is the pillar we're working with them on. And that's all around providing girls with access to sports and the benefits and opportunities that come out of being able to participate in sport. And recognizing that girls don't have the same opportunities that boys do, um, and that's the same all around the world, uh, for all sorts of all sorts of different reasons. So we've we've designed this program for them, um, which has started off in Europe. The focus has started off in Europe, and we are and Adidas have made a commitment over the next five years, uh, and we're one year into the program now, to directly improve the lives of fifty thousand girls, uh, build the capacity of fifteen sport for good organizations. Um, empower 100 champions, local community champions, to become role models for girls in sport, and to really change the conversation across the whole of sport around this issue of access for girls to sport. 
So, so they funded this, um, uh, they're empowering it. Um, the, what's really interesting is that, you know, there were, there were a lot of cut, cutbacks last year, just about every single corporation in the world cut back their, their marketing dollars, their advertising dollars. Um, Adidas were the same. Uh, they didn't cut this program at all. And that is because they talk about it being a commitment, not a campaign. You know, this is a five minimum five-year commitment they've made to try and change the dynamic in society around girls and access to sport, um, to put their money behind that and their network and their resources behind that to make that possible. Um, so that's that's a really good example um, Neil, that, that I really like. Neil, one thing, lots of others. One one thing you said that was really interesting was that, you know, these a the partnerships piece, right? Obviously, working together, but when you first think about what the partnership is and how companies and and or properties are after these partnerships because of the financial gain you mentioned that the double bottom line right so that there's there still is this financial gain to a partnership in many respects right you just mentioned kind of the access for you know women in sport well eventually those those women become fans and then they're spending in other areas. So there's this long-term future that if you're really short-term focused, you don't see what you're doing. You just don't, you can't understand it because it doesn't bring that, that impact right this very second to the bottom line, but long-term future. And you mentioned this earlier in the episode that was interesting was you kind of have this uh, and you're 15 years early, right? Of, of what, what needs to happen, trends, et cetera. So how do you get people to think on the same wavelength? Because you can go blue in the face, you know, talking about all this, but if they don't think or see it on the same perspective, then you're not going to get anywhere. Hmm. Yeah. So you're hundred percent right. I mean, I use the term enlightened self-interest. Um, that's really what this is all about. And it's, it's, it's about remaining relevant to the people that you want to buy your products and services. This is not about hugging trees and being a good guy. This is, you know, this is at the end of the day, purpose is a business conversation. Um, and, and people are doing this stuff because their customers expect them and to do it, like I said already, and people, investors expect it, customers expect it, the people that are going to want to work at these companies expect it. And so there's this, this pressure from everywhere else on businesses to change. Um, but, but, and I, in about being 15 years early, I think, I think the environment today is more conducive to these types of uh, decisions because people are starting to take a more longer term view on things. So, you know, I mean, people like Paul Palman at Unilever, you know, he said, I'm not going to, we're not going to report on a quarterly basis anymore. And if you don't like that, then disinvest from the share, you know? So he just told the investment analyst, if you don't like the way that we're doing this, that's fine. I'm not forcing you to stay as an investor, go and invest in somebody else who's going to report on a quarterly basis. And he took that decision because he recognized that it's in the long term. He's, he's playing a long game. And so I think what we're seeing is more and more corporations are playing the long game um, and recognizing, and the reason they're doing that is because they're recognizing the short game is not sustainable. Um, because you make, when you have to manage a business on the making short-term decisions, you make bad decisions in the long run, nine times out of 10. Um, you know, one of the things that, you're, that strikes a chord is that also as you're, as you're seeing more interest, the decision is actually, this decision and sort of this reality is actually being made higher up in organizations. I mean, I used to say that if, 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 you, want to, if you want to kill a deal, go through the marketing department and try to sell your way up. It's sometimes it's easier to do the moonshot and go to the top, get them to agree to the concept and have them assign their 
you know, their marketing people to do it. And actually, that was one of the things that we wound up, it was an experience that we wound up happening at Super Bowl 50. But it was, uh, but now that that the world is sort of, it's sort of decided that, you know, what it, here's what it's like not living with sports and activities for a year. How do you really feel about it? There's, that's why this opportunity to, to find out why this is all more, so meaningful and could be more meaningful going forward. You know, Neil, maybe you're 15 years too early, but you just, maybe you just got to live another 15 years longer. <laughs> than you know? I intend to do that. I intend to do that. Okay. But, but you're, you're right, Pat. I mean, it's, you know, this is um, purpose is a strategic um, driven thing. It's not a tactical thing. Um, so, you know, we're, the conversations we're having today tend to be with more senior people in the organization. Um, and we love to be able to talk to the CEO or the chief strategic officer or, um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's happening there. And, and, and I, and I think, what, again, we come back to COVID. So what happened when, when COVID hit, when, when Adam Silver made that announcement that the NBA was, was shutting down, I mean, basically sport went into lockdown, right? Overnight. I mean, it was amazing how quickly it happened within 10 days, sport was gone. Okay. So from being a very thriving industry to being nothing. Uh, and the reason for that was that sport is essentially being built and positioned as an entertainment offering. So it's an entertainment product that drives huge dollars for the owners and the athlete and, by, and as, a, as a side product, the athletes, okay? Extract value from the fans, uh, either through the broadcast or through tickets and all that kind of stuff and make the, make the owners wealthy through this entertainment product. That's the model. And it's often wrapped up in a monopoly type of situation with these leagues that control, control all the access and, and, and enhance the value. So, so when you take away the oxygen from that model, it it's, it's just falls over because it's got nothing to, to rely on. So, you know, I, I love that word that, that started to emerge at that time, which is this idea of an essential service. What is an essential service? The only services that we're going to keep going are essential services. And the, the truth is that sport wasn't considered to be an essential service. Okay. Because it wasn't designed to be that. So I think what COVID's done is it's forced people to think about something other than sport being something other than just an entertainment offering. And what is its role in the community and how can it become an essential service? So when the next pandemic comes and there will be one, there's no doubt about that. Sport is able to stay turned on and still able to have a revenue stream and still to play a role in society because it's designed itself in such a way that it's actually good for the community. Like who, who would want to turn off Super Bowl 50, Pat, based on what it did for the society? Nobody wants to turn that off, you know, right. but if it's just another Super Bowl event with a whole bunch of people getting drunk and eating too much, it's easy to turn it off. So, so I think that's that's what's happening. So, but so that and that allows a more longer term. So I think COVID's forced people to to reevaluate the short term focus, to reevaluate the entertainment model, and to realize that there's a different role for sport and that is built around making society better. And it's such a powerful platform to do that. I mean, the level of engagement that we have with with our fans and, I mean, people that's sponsors pay millions of dollars every year to have access to that those fans that we I think to be honest, sport is abused over the years. You know, and the young audiences today are just saying, I, I don't need that. I've got other things that I can do. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, despite um, during the COVID period, viewership numbers have gone down drastically on all the big sports properties, haven't they? I mean, Super Bowl was down, Final Four was down. Yeah, they have it because there's so many more ways to, to consume. I mean, TikTok, I mean, you got all talking about their TV ratings. TV, yeah. you laugh at TV ratings because that, that's not an indication anymore of how people are consuming um, these different things. And, 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 and frankly, that's, that's gonna be the secret, unlocking that 
is is going to be the secret of how uh, how growth happens. And um, you know, it, 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 I, you know, our opportunity too is to try to document what happened during this pandemic. I mean, I wish somebody had written a book in 1918 that sort of here's lessons learned that we had for the pandemic. Well, they, you know, they didn't do that. And yeah, yeah. I remember reading about, I think it was Franklin Roosevelt that said, uh, you know, as they were pulling the country out of the depression and the second world war, as, as he said, you know, the things that made money during the depression were the shoe stores and the movie houses because people had to have shoes, but they also had to have entertainment. They had to get away from it all. They had to, they had to, it has to be some sort of a respite from your difficulties which, you know, like it or not, that's one of the things that sports does for us yeah. is it gives people a, an escape. And I think that's still relevant. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think if you think about young people today, what do they want to do? Young people's worlds revolves around being online. I mean, they spend more time online than offline. They, they want to be social activists. I mean, it's kind of, they're born that way. I mean, it's just incredible talking to young people today. It's just, it's just part of their DNA. They want to be social activists. And so if you can add sport to the mix there and have those three ingredients together, I think you've got a really powerful combination because you've got, you know, the online engagement, you've got the social activism opportunity, and you've got all the passion and excitement around sport. So that's the opportunity that sport has. It has to figure that out. But, but I think the biggest, you know, you talk about that book in 1918, Pat. I just wish that the people that are, that are, that are running sport had just been paying attention to what's been going on in the world around them for the last 20 years. Because I think we've been caught up in our own little bubble. You know, it's, it's, it's really been too easy to make money in sport. If you think about it, you know, you buy a sports team, um, you become part of a league, you get a, a, a get a check from the, 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 the broadcaster deals once a year, you show up and it doesn't really matter whether you win or lose, you still get make a whole bunch of money. And, you know, and something that you bought for 50 million in 1970s now worth 5 billion in uh, 2021. So, there's not much imperative for people to look elsewhere in that kind of environment. And I, and I think that's the problem. You know, we kind of lived in this bubble and we didn't realize that the world was changing around us and it has been changing big time. The world today is different and it was different five years ago. Sport just didn't realize it. And so I think that's the big aha moment that COVID has kind of forced people running sport uh, to just open their eyes and realize the world has changed around us. We better wake up and pay attention. Otherwise we might not be around in 10, 15 years time. Neil, I, I got to wrap up the, well, I, let's hope not. Um, I got to wrap up the episode with, you know, your very futuristic thinking and, and forward thinking. And I think your, your comment about the bubble and kind of tunnel vision is, is pretty spot on. But what's that next thing that's changing around the world that sports still doesn't see? Yeah, it's, so th there's a whole, I mean, where, where, um, where business is at right now. So if we think about you know, um, first of all, we had CSR, then we had sustainability, which was all around reducing your environmental footprint. And then it's become about purpose, which is the theme right now. Um, so sports still two steps behind. I mean, they're doing, there is some good stuff happening on the sustainability front in sport, to be fair. Um, on the purpose front, there are a few, there are a handful of good opportunities, uh, like Super Bowl 50, but like um, Formula E, the Ocean Race, um, Oakland Roots Sport Club here in, in the Bay Area, Angel City Football Club. You know, there are a handful of, of, of sports properties that are starting to become uh, purpose-led. But what's happening and what business is already talking around now is, is the regenerative economy. And it's this idea that we can actually, can we create a system that's like a closed loop so that we don't have to extract anything out of the planet. So we don't have to extract 
any resources out of the planet. We just take the stuff that we've already extracted and reuse it in a kind of circular economy. Um, and that's really interesting. So that to try and have that conversation with sport right now is a bit of a challenge because nobody really knows what you're talking about. Um, so every, every golf ball you lose somewhere somehow gets back to the other person. There you go. There's an example, you know, or every, I've lost a ton of golf. Balls. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, or wouldn't so, it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool I if plan you... on, I plan on continuing to lose them. So I'd love, go. I'd love to have a tracker in there. So when you lose it, you actually know where it is, but then we all know that that hurts the companies because then they don't sell as many and yeah. you know, the wheel goes round, but, but wouldn't it be, here's well, a crazy, here's a crazy, here's a crazy idea. Cool. Wouldn't it be cool if the go ahead? Sorry, here's a crazy idea. Wouldn't it be cool if the ball knew that it had been hit into the rough and it was never going to be found, and so it just turned into a tree? That'd be cool. Well, but it would be cool. <laughs> but that idea of having a golf ball that you you couldn't lose—that was actually brought up to the golf. I know a little bit about the golf business. It was brought up to golf uh, a number of years ago, and it, everybody it sounded wonderful and all that stuff. And the manufacturers are kind of whispering each other, going. What in the hell? They're screwing. <laughs> We're not going to sell any more of these things. So, yeah. you know, you, you sort of have to. Um, I think what's ironic, and we we can close this up, is that I think that when you when you factor in for sports, the 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 thing about feeling safe at a sporting event, uh, personal safety, that was not something that was you know that was a major concern of people, and now we've built all these venues that you know are putting people close together and you're right on top of the action that is sort of the thing that we have to overcome and we have to figure out a way to make people feel safe safe enough to come so yeah i think that's a short-term problem pat i think people will forget, people have got short-term short memories you know i think two or three years time everybody will be back to doing things the way they were <laughs> from that perspective but i think what's really exciting is maybe you know just to close off on this point i had a conversation yesterday with a general manager of one of the um, one of the leading teams um, probably in the world sports teams in the world and he said to me at the at the end of the at the end of the conversation he says this has been a and I was basically just giving him the pitch on what we do and why we think they should be thinking about purpose and he said this has been an hour really well spent um, he says you've opened my eyes to a whole area that I hadn't even considered before and the crazy thing is that we're we've just had the the best financial year we've ever had um, but he says the problem is that our business model was was the best business model to have in February 2020, but it's no longer the best business model to have in February 2021. And so I'm so pleased that we've met you guys because I think you're onto something here. And uh, you know, so those that gives me hope that um, you know the the for, forward thinking leaders in sport are starting to recognise that there's a different way to do things, um, and that gives me hope, Jake, that sport will still be around in 15 years' time and that we'll figure it out. Um, but now, now's the time, the crunch time. You either you either get with the program and become purposeful and build it into your business, or you become irrelevant. And we can meet again for a beer in 15 years' time, and we'll see if I'm right or wrong. Well, so in the meantime, well, just for our listeners, um, go go to Amazon and uh, look for Neil's book. It's called Legacy Sport. Um, you can get it on Amazon, um, and it's examples of things. If you're looking to put some tangibility against this, um, go go get Neil's book. Uh, Neil Duffy, Legacy Sport uh, on Amazon. Neil. Neil, it's one of those things that it'll it'll accelerate where you can't you can't. It's like it's like when the stock price goes through the roof, 
you're not getting in at an entry point that's that's going to be successful right your risk is too high you can't so to your point it's crunch time now and i think uh, it's absolutely fantastic what you've been able to do what you're currently doing and what your what your mission is so as pat mentioned uh, i'll definitely be looking to get a copy and um, certainly you know continue to educate myself and, and educate the rest of, of our listeners and and continued on that's great thank you jake thank you pat it's amazing how quickly 45 minutes go when you're having fun